0: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this text is in the Bible because it speaks to pain that all of us feel at one level and some feel very deeply and personally. Lord, there are some in this room who have experienced enormously cruel events in their lifetime. And today I pray that you would free them from the bitterness, the revenge, the angst that comes with scales of justice that have yet to be balanced. I pray today that you would use this text to remind us of your greatness and your glory and the simple fact that you are God and we are not. And so we ask you now to use this psalm to be another step in our journey to know what it is that you want us to learn about hardship and suffering and pain. Pray that my words would be your words today, Lord, and they'd minister great healing, great grace, and great release of revenge. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Today we are bringing to close our summer series on the Psalms, where we were looking at some tough questions—questions that I'm really grateful are in the Bible. Questions that are hard. We've we've learned that life is hard. The Psalms are honest, and God is good. It's been a, been a great journey. Over the last number of weeks, we've looked at the following questions from the Scriptures. We've asked the question, Lord, why do you hide yourself? Psalm 22, the very words of Jesus on the cross, Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 39, what, are the measure, what is the measure of my days? Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Psalm 42. Psalm 49, why should I fear in times of trouble? Psalm 79, how long, O Lord, and then last week, this idea of where is your steadfast love, a psalm written for moments when you know that God is good, you know His promises are in the Word, you, you know what God says, but man, you're on the dark side of God's will, and in that cold, dark, and lonely moment, you wonder, God, where in the world is your steadfast love right now? The point of all of these tough questions in the psalms is to help us not only feel like somebody understands our pain, but more importantly, to help us cling to God's promises when life gets very, very difficult. And this is why we love the Psalms, because they they speak to our pain, but they also help us know what we ought to do and how we ought to think. So we're wrapping up this series today, and then next week we'll begin a a five-week series on the subject of learning to defeat sin. We'll deal with an old school word, mortification. What does it mean to battle sin? This, this latent desire, these sinful things within us, how do we deal with that? The title is Licensed to Kill, and I want to try and help us um, take sin more seriously and fight it more consistently and then live more victoriously. And so that's what our goal is, and would invite you to come ready, come prayed up, and then would ask you as a part of this church to pray fervently for this body over the next five weeks because we are going right after the core issue of our lives and the core issue the enemy does not want us to find victory in. And while you're at it, it would be a great time too to invite someone to come along with you, a friend, someone who's perhaps looking for a church home. Today, though, we deal with the issue of what it means to long for judgment. This final psalm, takes up the issue of injustice and our desire to see God do something in the future in order to balance the scales. This um, this psalm is a psalm of divine intervention, a, a psalm of divine retribution, and what's happening here is that the psalmist is looking at the inequity of fairness that he sees in the world and his life, and he wants God to do something about it. And my guess is every one of us knows what that feels like at one level. You see something goes wrong, something happens, something that's unfair, and you're just like, come on, and you want for the scales of justice to be balanced. We we live in a broken world, a world that on the one hand, uh, the Bible tells us, is full of God's goodness, and then on the other hand, a broken world where that goodness doesn't always seem to make sense, and we long for the day when God will make everything right. The problem, though, with this psalm is it says some things that, frankly, should make you a bit uncomfortable, particularly verse 9. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock? Yikes! Don't make that your life verse, right? I mean, that's, that's a rough one. Don't use that with your initial sharing of the gospel. The problem is, though, is that we live in the midst of a culture where that, that, that verse seems really out of place. I mean, after all, it's it's more common to emphasize God's forgiveness and His reconciliation, His love, which is a really important part of who and what God is. And yet, what people also do is they downplay the other side of the coin, that being God's judgment. Trevin Wax has an excellent article in this month's edition of Christianity Today on the subject of future judgment the article title is Rejoicing in Wrath, Why We Should Look Forward to Judgment Day. In that article, he cites John Lennon's 1971 song, Imagine, as a great example. Remember that song? I wasn't even born then, but that's okay. So 1970, I made some of you feel really old. So I had to go back and do some research on this, this, this ancient song <laughs> and... So apparently it has a great, um, it's a great example of a worldview gone awry. And here's what Lenin said: Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. John Lennon's belief shared by many people in our culture is that if you can imagine no heaven, no hell, no religion, that would allow us then to... All be one. But Trevin Wax puts his finger on the problem with this view when he writes this. You cannot have perfect justice without judgment. God cannot make things right without declaring certain things wrong. It is the judgment that leads to a perfectly just world. Try to take one without the other, and you lose the good news. It's really important. Without judgment, there is no good news. In other words, judgment is not only necessarily necessary and vital. Judgment is actually something that should be longed for. And that's what Psalm 137 is all about. So let me show you this and then unpack some things related to this issue of judgment at the end. The psalm begins with a painful request that is asked of the psalmist. Verse 1, By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now once again, we see that the context of this psalm, like other psalms, is the Babylonian captivity, this 70 year period where Israel was destroyed as a nation and then deported. As a part of the scheme of the Babylonian empire to conquer the world when nations were conquered they not only decimated their cities but then they took their people especially the upper echelon the highly educated the children of the rulers and they deported them and brought them into the intellectual areas of their culture and tried in effect to assimilate them into Babylonian culture I mean, mean, the reason it makes sense from a strategic and military perspective, if people are deported and they're dispersed all over the world, that makes an insurrection very difficult. And secondly, by taking people from all over the world and then inculcating in them Babylonian values, you begin to brainwash people a bit and make your culture not only pluralistic, but broader than just the Babylonian environment, and then helping everyone to be one homogenous group of people. You instruct them in the Babylonian way. This is this is the background to the book of Daniel. This is the background to the story of Daniel, where Daniel, as part of the, the ruling class family, was deported along with his friends and were brought into the king's palace with a program over three years to help them learn the, the Babylonian way. In fact, Daniel 1.4 says this, the goal was to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So their names were changed, their diet was changed, And the goal was to change their thinking. Sometimes this integration worked well, other times not so much. That's why you have stories in the Bible like uh, the fiery furnace, remember that? That's a moment when the integration didn't work so well. Bow down to the idol, no thanks, enter the fiery furnace. Or Daniel and the lion's den, let's pass a a law and require people to do the things that we want them to do and not pray three times, and Daniel refuses that, thus Daniel and the lion's den. So verse 1 seems to indicate that this psalm was written during this dark and difficult season. Perhaps it was written early in the years of the Babylonian captivity, when the pain of what had just happened in Israel was fresh, when the destruction of Jerusalem was very on the minds and hearts of God's people, and this ensuing deportation was very challenging to deal with. He says, by the waters of Babylon, verse 1, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So the psalmist is painting a picture here for us of by the waters of Babylon. See, Babylon was known for a lot of technological advances, and one of them was a system of irrigation canals that flooded these plains. And this was something Israel had not known, and so the fact that they're by the waters of Babylon means that they are in a very different land. And these waters of Babylon have a bit of symbolic meaning because it's not only that The psalmist reflects on this, but the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1 and verse 3, and the book of Daniel in chapter 8 and verse 2, indicate that both Ezekiel and Daniel have special visions by the Lord at these so-called waters of Babylon. So these unusual waters were probably a constant reminder of how different life really was. Think of it like culture shock. So the psalmist is is by these waters in a foreign land and he thinks about the state of his nation and he weeps. Notice that he says, by the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. He could have said Jerusalem, could have said Judah, could have said Israel, but instead he chooses the name Zion, which is an affectionate term for God's city, for His people, for the nation of Israel. In Psalm 48 it says, beautiful in elevation is the joy of the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So Zion is the emotional name for Jerusalem, a term that is loaded with affection and pride. And so when he thinks of Zion, his heart aches. His eyes well up with tears. The glorious city where God's presence used to dwell. The, the the summit of the people of God is now destroyed. The walls are broken down, the temple is in ruin, and he's in a foreign land. It's a sad picture that he wants us to see, and then it gets worse. Because with all of this grief, there's really no reason to sing. Verse 2, that's why he says, On the willows there we hung up our lyres. A lyre was a harp-like instrument. Six to eight strings. You would pluck it with your fingers like you would a harp. And it was used primarily for festive, celebratory occasions or worship. It was a, an instrument associated with happy, joyful, prosperous times. So they hang up their harps on the willows by the water of Babylon. And then to make matters worse, the psalmist is asked by his captors to play some of the celebration songs connected with their Jewish heritage. So when you read verse 3, notice the irony of words and even how closely they are located even in the sentence. For there are captors required of us songs. And our tormentors, mirth. Tormentors and mirth, those don't really go well together. And so this idea of sing us one of the songs of Babylon isn't just a simple request. It is a mocking request. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, you prisoners. Sing us one of your celebratory songs about your great nation, which we've destroyed. That's the tone. The irony here is enormous. There's a level of cruelty as these soldiers mock their captives. In the excavation of the city of Nineveh, the capital city of another country named Assyria, there was a mural on the wall that depicted three prisoners of war who were being forced to play music, harps, while they marched in captivity. It reminds me of the environment of Auschwitz where Jewish captive musicians were set up and played beautiful classical music as captive concentration camp workers marched out to their death under the banner of a sign that said, Work brings freedom. It's cruel. It's despicable. The mockery here is clear. So let's put all this together. We have a psalmist whose heart is breaking over the destruction of a city that represented everything to him. He he feels displaced. He feels deeply disturbed over what is happening. And, And while he's still in the middle of this grief, the very people who have caused him pain treat him in a way that is cruel. The irony of the situation must have been incredibly painful. You're a captive person. And he says, why don't you sing us some of the victory songs of Israel? So it's not just that bad things have happened. And it's not just that some people have been mean, or even that they have gotten away with it. The issue here is all of that plus the inconsiderate irony and the cruelty embedded in the request to sing these songs of Zion. The mockery is obvious and it's cruel. Now, this is a sad thing to think about, but I can only imagine that for some of you, you relate very much to how the psalmist feels. I mean, all of us at one level have had mean things happen to us. The scales of justice don't seem to be balanced very well, but there's others, I know there has to be a fairly significant handful of people where it's not just that unfair things happened, it's that the people who did the unfair things did them in a horribly cruel way. They may have laughed, mocked, joked, it may have been a crowd. And it's not just that what happened to you was wrong. I mean, that's one thing. But it's the Mocking cruelty that makes the injustice even more significant. And this is the scene in Psalm 137. A man who is grieving, who is hurting, life is unfair, and the people who are inflicting the pain are just being downright cruel. He then moves into defiant love. The next verses, 4 to 6, we get a window into the heart of the psalmist as he recounts his resistance to bending to the desires of his captors. We, we hear him talk about his love for the people of God. We hear a defiant hope that he will not forget Jerusalem. And, and while there are limitations as to how much he could actively do in terms of his resistance, there's an internal conversation that's going on here that very much sounds like there is a deep seated resistance. You'll hear it. Verse 4 he asks a pejorative question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? He's talking to his own soul. How can I sing this song when I'm in a foreign land? He's struggling with the contrast between the victorious sounds of the songs of Zion and the reality of his life. This was no time in his life for the joyful songs of old. To celebrate the rule of God, his heart is too full of grief to full of sorrow. And singing these songs would only make it worse. So he can't sing these songs. But there's even more here, more than just grief. For him, to sing these songs would be an act of forgetfulness, an act of disloyalty to what he cherishes in the past. It's almost As if he believes that to sing them now while they're in Babylon would be to treat Jerusalem and the memory of her glory with contempt. So he says in verse 5, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. In other words, I'd rather lose my ability to play this liar than forget you, Jerusalem. Verse 6, Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. I don't want to sing, I don't want to play To sing these songs right now with Jerusalem in ruins would be painful, and it would make light of the terrible situation that had befallen him and the people of God. Joyful songs just don't fit this moment, and they would be totally inappropriate. He'd rather lose his musical ability and have his mouth completely stopped from singing than make a mockery of what has happened. And so therefore the psalmist is defiant in his love for the city of God. To sing a song right now about the victorious city of Jerusalem... It would be awful. He, he is, he's grieving and he is longing, longing for a better day. The final part of the psalm longs for justice. And this is important for you to see because it answers this question. So, so what do you do when you seem to be in an unchanging and painful and unfair scenario? Where do you go with the emotions that you feel? What do you you say when life is unfair and when people have been really cruel to you? Where do you go with all the rumblings of your soul? And the remaining verses, 7 to 9, help us. They give a great example for us of how to think when life has not only been unfair, when it's been unfair and at the hands of certain people have been incredibly cruel. What do you do? These verses in 7 to 9, they long for justice to be done. So, The psalmist is personally helpless, he he, he can't change his captivity, he's going to be there for a long time, he's in a foreign land, he's powerless to change the circumstances in his life, just like you and I are virtually powerless to change many of the circumstances in our lives. And so he does the only thing that he can do, he does the thing that you should do, he cries out to God. He he rolls his burden. He lays this at the feet of God. His his words are honest. They are painful. And if we're candid, they're a bit troubling. Verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation. What's this all about? Well, the Edomites were the Descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob was loved and and Esau wasn't. And Jacob became the father of Israel. And Esau became the father of the Edomites. The, the, The nation lived to the south of Israel and they were vassals of Babylon. Well, when Babylon came and attacked Israel, rather than defend Israel or help them, they just simply took their hands off of it and just watched now, actually, they did more. They didn't just watch. They gloried in the destruction of Israel. They, they even used it as a, a, an opportunity for personal and national advancement. They, they saw the demise of someone near them, and they not only did nothing, they gloried in it, and then they advanced over top of those who had been decimated who were so close to them. Some of you know exactly what this feels like. I mean, it's not just that somebody was cruel to you and they were unkind. That was bad enough in and of itself. But there were people near and close by who did nothing. Who just watched or in some cases even used the cruelty that happened to you as a means of stepping over your pain and exalting themselves. Obadiah 11.12 speaks about Eden this way. On the day that you stand aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners Entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. That's how you felt. You have a friend, a relative, a close person. They just stood and they did nothing and their silence made them participants. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune, Obadiah 12. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. So what happens is that Edom rejoiced in the downfall of their neighbors, and the psalmist asked not only on judgment for Babylon, but also those who by their lack of compassion stood back and were complicit in the abuse. And then he turns to Babylon. Verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. He he talks to Babylon in this prayer. And what does he long for? He longs for just repayment. Based upon the principle in Deuteronomy chapter 19 that justice needs to be balanced, and therefore this idea came out of the Old Testament law, not that I would do this to somebody else, but that principle justice meted out by others on a criminal would look like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The idea is this, the balance of justice, these scales need to be balanced. And so he longs for Babylonian, the Babylonian people to receive what they really deserve. And as well, this is the same thing that is communicated in Jeremiah fifty-one, fifty-six, that there will come a day when God will repay them for what they deserve. But it's verse 9 that is particularly troubling, and candidly, it's graphic. It reflects the psalmist's white-hot pain. Verse 9, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. What in the world do we say about a statement like this? Two things. First, you need to know that the psalmist is echoing a specific promise in God's Word that he made regarding the destruction of Babylon. So it's not as though the psalmist just came up with this idea out of his own imagination and his own wrath and his own desire for revenge He yearns in a bloodlust sort of way for their children to be dashed against the rocks. That's not what is going on here. Rather, he's echoing the specific promises that God made in Isaiah 13 against the country of Babylon in terms of what punishment would befall them. Listen to Isaiah 13, 16. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the meads against them who have no regard for silver and who do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. See what he's doing? So he is not creatively coming up with this idea. He's anchoring to a stated promise in the Scriptures, in effect, saying, God, do what you have said that you will do in terms of the balancing of the scales of justice. Secondly, while his emotions are very strong and rather graphic, he is appealing to God for judgment, not for his own ability to enact personal revenge. This is really important. This is a psalm written by a man who longs for God to act. And he's pouring out his heart and all of the pain that comes from this great injustice, yet he is not taking these matters into his own hands. He's not asking for personal empowerment to do this himself. He's saying, God, would you be true to your word and do exactly what you've said that you will do. God, this is what we long for. The prayer essentially then is... A gut-wrenching request to have the enemies of God's people reap what they sow. The psalmist is pleading with God, Lord, please make these wrongs right. I long for the day of ultimate justice. My my hope in the midst of this deep, deep pain is that one day you, God, are going to make this mess right. You're going to fix it once and for all. And so in the midst of all of this pain, he pours this vile, hard, challenging cup of the brokenness of life and he pours it at the feet of his God. He longs for judgment. So this then raises an important concept about the hope of judgment. There, there, is, there is something very hopeful about future judgment and this psalm is in the Bible for good reason. Most of us know what it's like to be treated unfairly, and there's far too many who know what it's like to have endured cruel abuse. And and why the psalm is so beautiful is it speaks to a relevant and very deeply personal issue. And it raises the specter for us of the hope of future judgment. So, why is future judgment something we should hope in? Let me give you five reasons. In the first place, future judgment is hopeful in that it demonstrates the holiness of God. Listen, friends, there is no other quality that captures God's essence better than His holiness. Isaiah 6 says that God is holy, holy, holy. No other character quality of God is mentioned in the Scripture with that three-part repetition It is the divine purity, the holiness of God that defines His existence and holds the entire universe together. Everything that you know in life about fairness and right and wrong and the whole concept of forgiveness and the idea of reconciliation is all predicated and relies on the fundamental characteristic of the fact that God is holy, holy, holy. That character quality holds the entire universe as you and I know it together. And judgment reflects and celebrates. It demonstrates the holiness of God. Again, Trevin Wax in his article says this, The God who is truly scary is not the wrathful God of the Bible, but the God who closes His eyes to the evil of this world, shrugs His shoulders, and ignores it in the name of love. What kind of love is this? A God who is never angered at sin, who lets evil go by unpunished, is not worthy of worship. The problem isn't that the judgmentless God is too loving, it is that he isn't loving enough. So, this whole idea of judgment is critical to the idea of God's holiness judgment demonstrates the holiness of God God has to deal with evil he has to deal with sin or he ends up ceasing to be holy it would violate the very essence of who he is so the promise that we're going to talk about here is rooted not just into a concept no no the promise of future judgment is rooted in the very essence of the fundamental quality of what makes God God find something more sure than that can't and when you are in the midst of a cruel moment you need something so sure so certain so deep beyond your wildest dreams and judgment is rooted in that very quality that being the holiness of god number two the second thing that judgment does is it makes unfairness tolerable i think it's somewhere in your teenage years that you begin to learn that life just isn't fair in our elementary minds, we, we kind of have this idea of fairness, and, and things are so small in terms of their impact that even unfairness issues don't seem to be all that important or that significant. Somewhere in our teenage years that we we, we learn that growing up means means coming face-to-face with the reality that, that dad can't fix everything. Duct tape has its limits. And people who do mean things... Get away with it. To live in a world, though, where there is no judgment would dramatically increase the pain of this reality. It would increase, as well, the scope of evil of what people will do if they believe there is no God and no no judgment. Just just think of, of, of people, governments, regimes who believe in their worldview there is no God. Then where is the restraint on evil? Often there has been no restraint with evil. Because with no eternal consequences for their actions, a person is free to do whatever they wanted to do, including great crimes against humanity, all because there is no ultimate accountability. But when there is ultimate accountability, it changes everything. The future of judgment means that hurting and suffering people, according to 1 Peter 2.23, can keep entrusting themselves to the One who judges justly. If God doesn't judge justly, then you're a fool to trust Him. So in the midst of hard and painful circumstances, it means there can be freedom because while life is hard and bad things happen... And evil takes place in the end. It does not win. Evil will not ultimately be victorious. There is coming a day when he will make everything right. And therefore, we wait under the weight of unfairness, believing that one day, one day, he's going to sort all this out. Again, Trevin Wax says this, Humans are united by a desire for justice. We realize that life isn't fair, and yet for some reason we think that it should be fair. The Bible teaches that life isn't fair now, and yet Scripture still points to a day when wrongs will be righted and justice will be served. God will straighten things out once and for all. That is why the idea of Christ's return in judgment brings comfort. To those who suffer at the hands of the unjust, it is comforting to hold to the promise that one day all will be made right. This upside-down, crazy world will not go on in its current state forever. God will execute justice. The righteousness of God will be evident for all to see, and the knowledge of the Lord will flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the day. And that's when you're in the midst of pain and hurting and sorrow, you cling. God, there's coming a day when your righteousness will cover the earth like the water covers the sea. It makes unfairness tolerable. Third, it releases you from the trap of revenge. I'm sure there have been times in your life when you've tried to take your own revenge. When you've given somebody a taste of their own medicine. When you took your pound of flesh. And let's be honest, for a moment, for a moment, it, it kind of felt good, didn't it? But just after it starts to feel good, that feeling subsides. And what's crazy and scary about revenge is it doesn't ultimately satisfy you see, the problem with taking our own revenge is that it never reaches the level of the pain that we have felt. So the, the sick joy in inflicting pain on somebody else doesn't really eclipse the pain that we felt in our hearts oh we try that's why when somebody hits you you don't think okay now i'm going to hit them exactly with the same force and velocity that they hit me so that there's a system of fairness in this thing no no no. someone hits you you hit them back harder why because you want them to feel the pain that you felt plus a little bit of extra why because you want to not only make things right you want to make a point and that's what revenge is It is, I want you to feel what I feel. So, bang, I'm going to hit you harder than how you hit me. And whether it's words or actions or a plan or activities or actual physical altercations, behind revenge is this desire to not only balance the scales, but to make you feel what I feel. But it doesn't work. Which is why, even if you go for revenge, you still long for more. Which is why the Bible wisely says in Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the deal. Justice, true justice, is something only God can bring. What this means is that knowing... That God will take care of all the justice issues releases you. If you'll release it, it releases you from the trap of bitterness, resentment, and a lifetime of trying to get even. Laying at God's feet frees you when you say, God, you're going to take care of this. You'll take care of this justice issue. And then you are free to do what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, which is to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. How can you do that when justice still needs to be balanced? Answer, you pray. Let God take care of them. You bless them and let God take care of the justice issue. Knowing that God takes care of justice frees you from the trap of revenge. Some of you today are living in this very trap. And I promise you, if you could get your pound of flesh, it will not satisfy your longing for this pain to be eclipsed. It won't. Fourth. Judgment is helpful in that it reminds us about our own culpability. It reminds you about your own culpability. What do I mean by this? I mean that an appeal to God's judgment is a double-edged sword. By appealing to God's judgment, on the one hand, in regards to what has happened that's wrong to us, we are reminded of the high cost of sin and our own vulnerability and culpability before God. I mean, I'm sure the psalmist had to be aware that while he's praying for judgment on Edom and judgment on Babylon, that the whole reason he's even talking about this in the first place is because of sins that God has judged in Israel because of their disobedience to Him. That he's praying for judgment on those who God has used in judgment against Him. And this is what judgment does. The longing that we desire, the things we want to see happen in the lives of others also serve as a reminder to our own hearts of our own sinfulness and our own personal culpability so that while you're praying, God, balance the scales. There's also something in the back of your head says, but be merciful to me because I'm a sinner too. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then it says this, Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. That in the cry for justice, we are humbled and reminded that if it were not for your grace, I would be incredibly in enormous trouble in your presence because of everything that I've done wrong. Judgment longed for because of personal injustice reminds us about our crimes against God and others. And I've often wondered how many justice-oriented prayers that I've prayed about God, to God about others have those people prayed to God about me? I'm sure not very many. <laughs> but there must be a few. And I'm glad the Lord sorts that out. I'm glad you don't sort it out. And you're really glad that I don't sort it out. (laughs) Don't say amen to that or you'll be judged. Number five. (laughs) Just saying. Number five, it's the basis of the good news. In, In some respects, listen, judgment is the central message of the entire Bible. The Apostle Paul even linked gospel and judgment together in Romans 2. He says this, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. According to my gospel, He judges the secrets of men. So the gospel and judgment are absolutely linked. So if this is like your first time in, in church ever, I'm, just, I'm really glad you're here. If you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, it relates to this message of the good news, which has a judgment piece to it. And essentially is this, that God is holy and we are not. And that there's judgment for our sin. And God, because He's holy, can't simply wink at our sin and act as if it didn't happen. And what He does, in order to provide forgiveness, this thing that you probably are aware of, He pours all of His wrath out on Jesus... So that sin can be fully paid. And then he takes Jesus' death and he counts it as forgiveness for those who receive Jesus by faith. This is what it means to be a Christian. You've run to God in Christ for forgiveness. And God has poured all of your judgment out on another. So that every aspect of your life is now marked by what it means to love, serve, and follow Jesus Christ. Why? Because without Him, all you have is judgment. And in Him, all you have is mercy. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And this is the difference between heaven and hell. People who believe this and receive Christ, God welcomes them into His kingdom in everlasting joy. Those who don't, self-atone for their sins because their sin has to be paid for. If it's not paid by Jesus, then you pay for it. In everlasting torment in a place called hell. That's how the universe works. So judgment is incredibly central to the idea of good news. And then also in this judgment piece, you need to know that The good news to have its full effect means that there's coming a day when the King of Kings, the one who absorbed the wrath of God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lord comes and makes everything new. And this longing for the vindication of God's name and the complete destruction of evil on the world is what is in the heart of every believer when we say, Come, Lord Jesus, Come. When you see the sin in other people and its tragic effects, when you feel the weight of it in your own soul, when you see the destructive elements, the relational body bags that are all over the place because of sin in your heart, you say, come, Lord Jesus, come. What do you want Him to come and do? You want Him to come and judge. That's what you want Him to come and do. To make it all right, to balance the scales, to root out evil of every kind, and to take your place as the rightful King of the earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Which is why Psalm 93.16 says, Before the Lord He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. So when you find yourself suffering injustice, you know what you need? You need a a biblical understanding of judgment. When, When people treat you unfairly, and especially, listen to me, Especially when you are treated in a way that is just hardcore cruel. You need to hear the promise that there is coming a day when God will balance the scales. And when life seems unbearable, and when it seems terribly unfair, you need to rehearse the gospel to your soul because it is at the cross that the judgment of sin is satisfied, thus giving us hope for forgiveness and the promise that there is coming a day when the universal presence of evil will be conquered once and for all and Jesus will reign as King. So therefore, release your revenge. Let it go. Because it's not just going to be let go. God will take care of it. But you, you, you've got to let it go. Because vengeance is not yours. It's the Lord's. You bow your heads with me? In the quietness of this moment, College Park, as you just reflecting on what we have talked about, in a moment we're going to sing a great and victorious song. But before we get there, I know there are some of you today, I know that you need to say this. Some of you, it's the first time. Lord, today I release... And you need to put a name in that blank. And I give them to you. I release the name of this person. And I give them to you. It's it's yours. And in doing so today, you you agree with God and you say with Him, Lord, vengeance is yours. You'll repay. And in the meantime, you're going to choose to bless. You're going to choose to pray. You're going to overcome evil with good knowing that one day it's all going to be made right but this is not your war. I know it's unfair. I know it was cruel. I know they were mean. I know people stood by and watched and no one did a thing but this is not your war. And so you need to say, Lord, today I release so-and-so to you. I choose to rest under your protection, knowing that one day you are going to balance all the scales. For some of you, that's a prayer you've prayed before, but you've leaked in your commitment. The bitterness comes back, the memories come back, the the person comes back into your world, and it's a fight, and today maybe you need just to pray that prayer again. Maybe it's the hundredth, maybe the thousandth time you've prayed that. Lord, I am releasing them, I'm releasing this situation, I am giving it to you. So Lord Jesus, thank you that you've got big enough shoulders to take that burden. My goodness, you, you, you've, you've borne the weight of the sins of, of the world. And so we today anchor our hope that we can trust you because you're the one that one day will judge justly. And in the meantime, help my brothers and sisters to be strong in their courage, to be big in their hearts for you, and to choose to bless within what a punch, to choose to love when they would love to curse. Release Lord, in them, this yearning for revenge. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.